Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who really overcame the dragon. I thought Eldon was speaking in parables, so I thought I would be one of those disciples and I would ask for the interpretation of that parable. And he said it was a real dragon. Now I'll just let it go and I'll let you ask the rest of the story. But it's a blessing to be here. As the Lord says, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And uh, I know at some people, I talked to someone a few weeks ago that said he doesn't think it'll be another year till the Lord will come back. I know we have different opinions about that, but one thing we don't know, we don't know when. And we also know that many people have thought that for many generations that the Lord is going to come back in their generation. But we do know he is coming back. And uh, and he says, do not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So much the more. I just approaching. And I think we could all say we, at least we see the day approaching. Don't know when. Okay, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful to you for slaying the dragon. Yes, Lord, you crushed. You stepped on his head. You have overcome him. And we can enter into the same victory, Lord, as we enter into you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful days that we have. Thank you for the many beautiful blessings we have. Even, Lord, as we remember that we live in a dark world, in a dark place with much suffering. Just think of Mary and the team who were there as they are ministering in a troubled part of the world. And do pray you be with them and bless them, watch over them. And use them, Lord, in your kingdom. And then, Lord, we also think of the dark world that we live in here. Maybe not as much physical suffering, maybe not as much uh, war and turmoil in the physical way, but, Lord, much, much turmoil, much confusion and much lostness in our own land. Lord, we pray. Lord, Pray you meet our needs this morning so that we can meet the needs of others this week. The needs of our families, the needs of our neighbors, and yes, Lord, even our own needs. So, Lord, you only are worthy. You only, Lord, are the one who is awesome and mighty and eternal. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Second Peter, where we will continue on in the messages there. I'm going to have a little bit of a review of the last message. 
Last message we have verses 12 to 15 where Peter focuses on remembering. That word remember or remembering is is uh, three times in those four verses. So there was an emphasis on remembering. And then I use that example of the title of last, message, last week's message was First Generation Christians or the First Generation. And I contrasted the difference between what a first generation Christian experiences and the change he experiences versus a second generation. Where the first generation has uh, changes all over the place, many times cultural change, many times worldview changes, and many sometimes family changes. And But the second generation is not called for that. The call for the second generation is to continue on. So um, the second and the third generations are to remember. So other than the r- original and real conversion, the, first, the second generation is not called to change in the way the first generation is. Their call, they are called to remember and to continue. You know, Jude speaks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't keep changing that faith every generation. David Bershaw, in his study in the early Christians, states that the early Christians were ultra-conservative in this way, that they equated change with error. And since they did not expect any new revelation after the apostles... They summarily rejected any new teaching that did not come from the apostles and the scriptures. Then I brought that truth into the modern era and using the example of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation of the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation, was largely a return to the teachings and the examples of Constantine and Augustine, both which had accepted new teachings that the apostles had not accepted. Both of those men did. And then we went a little further to the modern evangelicals. Oh, I had read then a passage out of a Calvinist book that openly admits that new teachings were occurring at that time, during the time of Augustine. But it was viewed as positive because the view was that the early church was primitive and now it was maturing, and so change is a good thing. And so modern evangelicals are a mix of biblical and Augustinian thought. And so while there are many similar and overlapping beliefs and practices between evangelicals and Anabaptists, there are fundamental differences in the interpretation of Scripture. And that difference in interpretation results in completely different beliefs and practices in numerous areas. And the challenge today is since the Protestants have such developed institutions and such uh, 
impressive speakers and such, well, okay, vivid media of various kinds that we Anabaptists are drawn into that vortex that is a challenge for us. As we are drawn in and we are liking what they can offer to us, we are not aware of what's going out behind the back door during that time till usually later on. That was, in a nutshell, the last message. Now, some of the answer to that is, is that we do need to be revived and on fire and in tune and love with God and killing the dragons in our lives, obeying the Lord, giving our whole lives to him, uh, being amazed in the presence of the Lord, the Nazarene. If we are that, we don't need some of those other things. It's time that the world is afraid of us again. But even in that, we must be warned, like Peter does, to remember and to be faithful. And now we arrive at the passage that we will study this morning. And so we'll read starting at 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 15 for a little bit of context. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And we'll stop reading there. We'll go through the next several verses later on. So what is Peter referring to when he's talking about the Holy Mount? Well, I think we all know that. It's the, config, uh, the transfiguration. That time when Peter took three of his disciples and went to a high mountain. And while there, Jesus, the, the veil, Jesus was God in an earthly body. But for a little bit of time, that veil was taken away and they could see directly into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. His majesty is the word that is used. And then they saw two people who had been dead for a long, long time talking to Jesus. Well, what do you do with that? Let's actually turn to Mark. Early Christian tradition has it that Mark was actually Peter's gospel. Um, Mark wrote, uh, pretty well, a tribute that Mark wrote Mark, the gospel of Mark, but that he got his uh, source from Peter. 
So we'll turn to Mark chapter 9, and let's just read it there, what happened. And we'll start in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias, which is Elijah, and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. I wonder if that's that word that you were talking about this morning. Neil. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly when they looked around about, they saw no man any more save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And I'll just stop reading there, although we could read. That was probably an experience where I would, I could, I'm safe to say that's an experience none of us have ever had here. I am confident of that. And then they were told, don't tell anyone. The most awesome, marvelous, all-striking experience you have ever, ever had, and you're supposed to keep it to yourself. And they didn't. They didn't tell anyone. They would not understand. Then Jesus rose from the dead, and the gag order is removed. That's what he said. Until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. If you look further on, they say, well, what does it mean? Risen from the dead mean thing mean. What does that mean? They didn't know. They talked among themselves. But they didn't know. But when Jesus rose from the grave, rose from the dead, then they understood. Then they realized the gag order, and they began to talk. And they did. In fact, John did the same thing in First John, and he talked about, he said, uh, I'm going to read the other, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We gazed upon him, and our eyes have seen him. Our own eyes have seen him, and we touched him. He is the word of life. And so the gag order is removed, and so Peter is saying here in our context, in our verse this morning in his letter, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and that's what they were. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit this morning, the first part. He says, we saw him, we saw his majesty, we, he received honor and glory from the Father, we heard a voice, and the voice was from the excellent glory. That's what we heard, 
And then as he tells the uh, people to remember, he says, we had not followed cunningly devised fables. I want you to remember what I told you, and I want you to believe it, that there was this man who was a Jew who came and had a fantastic ministry. Okay? He had a fantastic ministry. He healed people of all kinds of sickness. There were people who were deaf. He got to hear. There were people who were blind. He got them to see. In fact, there were some people who were dead. He got back to life. But then he was falsely accused, and he was sentenced to die, and he died a horrible death. And after he, was, after he died, he was buried. After he was buried, he got alive again. He rose from the dead, and he appeared to lots of people, and we interacted with him. And then one day, one day, while we were outside Outside in the open country, we were talking with him, and he started to go up from the ground, and he went up and up and up and up until he went through a cloud. And we couldn't see him. And so we were standing there looking. There were two men came, and they had shining clothing on, so we knew there were angels. And they said, well, why are you standing there looking up in the sky? And he said, well, I don't know what they said. It doesn't say what they said. And he said, well, he's going to come back again in the same way that he went. Then, 50 days later, while we were all together, a marvelous thing happened. We all got filled with that spirit that he had promised that he would give to us. He wouldn't leave us orphans. And so, he gave us the spirit And his kingdom is being established on earth through now, through us as people. This entity on earth is called a church. This Jesus, we declare, is the Son of God. And he's working out his plan on the earth. Someday he's going to come back again. And when he does, he's going to destroy everything that's that's wrong with this world. And he's going to make everything right. Somebody might say, yeah, yeah, I've heard fantastic stories before. I've heard stories of unicorns and dragons. (laughs) And actually, I have that in my notes. (laughs) Unicorns and dragons and witches. I've all heard of all kinds of snake oil cures. And I've heard of... Stories about statues of Mary's weeping tears. And I've heard all kinds of stories. What makes, what makes you, why should I believe your story? In other words, there's Greek myths of how the world began. And there's just, just all kinds of stories. But Peter said, we did not follow a cunningly devised fable. Well, what is a fable? It's a story. It's a tale. Maybe it's a legend. But it's probably not true. Right? Fables are not, you don't say a fable, I'm going to tell you a fable, you're not going to tell you what happened to your day. It's a story that is has, has not true. So that's the fable. 
Now, what is a cunningly devised fable? It's a fable, a story, a legend that is so constructed as it, it is true. It isn't true, but it's given in such a constructed manner that it sounds true. It's a cunningly devised fable. A cleverly, cunningly devised fable and presented in such a way that appears believable and true. And this happens a lot. Why not believe that a man named Muhammad while meditating in a cave, had a revelation which he came to believe he was called by God to be a prophet and a teacher of a new faith. Why not believe that? Why not? Why not believe that Joseph Smith received some golden plates from an angel that had an ancient Egyptian language on it that he translated? (laughs) And now we have the Book of Mormon. Why not believe that the Christian... Science founder, Mary Edder Baker, who argued in her book, Science and Health, that sickness is an illusion and can be corrected by prayer alone. That had hundreds of thousands of adherents in the early 1900s. Well, why not believe that Charles Darwin, why not believe him who proposed the evolutionary theory He proposed that natural selection over long periods of time gave rise to all the variety of life that we see today through natural selection. Now that's a cunningly devised myth because there are millions and millions and millions that believe that story. But why not believe it? There are literally thousands of claims of truth by multitudes of individuals and religions and organizations. And they cannot all be true. In fact, it's, yeah, it's impossible. But most of them are cleverly devised. They're cleverly designed to make you believe they are true. In fact, they probably all are. There are stories or narratives or theories that are presented and argued to be true. And so facts are given. There's a premises from a certain premise. There's a, there are facts or logic and argumentation given. And, and they're put together in such a way that it actually sounds like it's true. In fact, I have heard some really convincing arguments of something that I knew were false, but the arguments are pretty good. Uh, recently, and uh, I don't know if anybody is here, somebody told me recently about this, and it's somebody I know from our circles, but God gave me a very good selective memory. I can remember something really well, but I don't remember who told me this. So if it's one in this room, um, that's fine. But recently I got wind of someone that he, this person heard someone else presenting 
a geocentric view of the earth. Geocentric means that the earth is the center of the whole universe. Everything revolves around the earth. The stars and the suns and the planets and everything revolves around the earth. Well, that was pretty well established in the 1500s where you have the heliocentric with the sun is the center of our solar system. But then that's only part of, and I don't know when they, when they got the whole thing figured out, but the geocentric view died out the 1500s on. I don't know how long it went into the, until it got uh, to the, to the uh, common people. So I was surprised when I recently bumped into someone that heard some individual give some very convincing argumentation that the geocentric view of the earth is indeed the correct view. If you just believe this argumentation. And he had an elaborate scheme was presented as why it's so. One of the things was, was it a huge conspiracy. People never went to the moon. They went out to the desert and took pictures. That's part of the, this uh, presentation. And then there was a wealth of alternative explanations. Now, you know, that's not, but what surprised me, whoever I talked to, <laughs> the story was so convincing that he almost wanted to believe it. That is a cleverly devised myth that has done something you know is wrong, yet it's gone in such a way it, you're almost persuaded. You know, that person was probably so convinced of his own theory that 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 persuasion persuades the next person. But it's a fable. You know, as I think of, and I don't know how much in history we want to go into here, but I think of Karl Marx when he wrote that book about communism. There were, there was, you know, half the world, about half the world was under communist rule at one time. And it was a horrible, horrible experiment. It was hundreds of millions of people were killed in that system to try to make it work. But it was a utopian belief system that if we implement these things, it will work the way it's supposed to work. And so with this kind of, uh, I think Marx, so it's, uh, it's a mixture of truth and error in that book, when he proposed that whole thing it was a cleverly devised fable that many people believed it sounded like the answer to the problems of poverty and all those things and while they were implementing their utopian dream of getting rid of poverty the west in its capitalistic system the common worker in the West was getting richer while the communists got poorer. <laughs> it did not work. Not that the capitalist system is right. I mean, no, not, not, I'm not saying that. 
And you could, uh, same thing with Germany, when uh, Hitler came to power, I mean, they were having a lot of problems. And Hitler gave them something to, he, with, his, with his vision, he inspired people to go somewhere. But it brought destruction. And so what I'm saying this morning, there is no shortage of cleverly devised myths that are vying for attention and allegiance to people on earth. In fact, everybody, everybody on earth is a person of faith. We all have a framework in which we understand things, in which we understand reality, in which we hang up our worldview. So, on what grounds does Peter have to say, what I am telling you, of all the other cunningly devised fables, what I'm telling you is not one of them. This is true. Why should you believe me? Well, he gave two reasons. First, he gives is an eyewitness. That's the first thing. And so we'll look at the first reason why uh, this is not a fable. I was an eyewitness. I witnessed his life, his miracles, and his marvelous teachings. But what he does in this context, in this letter, he actually zeroes in what to experience on that mount. That's what he does here. We saw Jesus shine. His, his clothing glowed. Well, yeah, it does. It shines. He came blindingly white. He doesn't express it here in this letter exactly in Peter what actually he saw. He just saw this one thing. He said, we saw his majesty. And that in one word encapsulates everything they saw. We saw his majesty. On Friday evening in devotions, we were reading where David captured the royal city of the Ammonites. And when David, when they captured the city, David took the crown off that king's head and put it on his own head. It was a gold crown set with gems and it weighed according to a modern measurement 75 pounds it was a royal crown it was a majestic crown and we are at awe at such royalty that crown is worth millions and the person who gets to wear that is a very important person. But that crown is rubbish compared to what Peter saw. He saw true majesty. When we talk about fade, fade each earthly joy, that is what Jesus, what Peter saw. Peter, I witnessed majesty, true majesty, eternal, pure, holy, powerful majesty. That's a big deal. 
I don't care what for glory you can conjure up of yourself. You will not hold a candle to this majesty. So what else did Peter see? Well, he saw two men, like I said, who had been dead for a long time. But there they were, talking. Now, how did he know there were Elijah and Moses? I don't know if you have any ideas or not. I don't know, but they were talking, so hmm, maybe they said. <laughs> kind of figure that. There was no question. But one thing those two men did as they were talking to Jesus is they were connecting Jesus with the history of the Jews. Do you know that? You had Moses way back, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then you had Elijah, which was a part of the prophets. And then here's Jesus. Jesus was not a new movement, so to speak. He was not a um, he was not disconnected from history. He was not someone who just an outsider who came in. He didn't come to drain the swamp. He was part of an ongoing plan, and Peter, he was witness to that. It, 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 I think it's important that Peter knew. Here you had Jesus, but then you had Elijah, and you had Moses, and you had that history connection. He was an eyewitness to that. Those two men, they connected the Jewish history and the Jewish scripture with this new phenomenon, this man called Jesus. He was in the company of Moses and Elijah, but he was greater than them. Peter saw that. And then Peter heard, he was an eyewitness, he was also an ear witness, he heard, he heard a voice from heaven. Now when did he hear that voice from heaven? Well, after he said, wow, let's make three tabernacles, let's, let's make three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Then he heard a voice, and that voice said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. No three-tent business. I'm sorry. No three-tent business here. There's going to be one tent. <laughs> There's going to be one tent. And that's what the Hebrew writer confirms. And I'll just read that. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse or various manners spoke in times past, Unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There we have, in a nutshell, basically a reiteration of what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, remember what I told you, even after I'm gone, I want you to remember this, because it's not a fable. We saw it, and we heard it, 
And it's real. I tell you, it's real. Someone might rightly argue, well, it's only some hallucination. I mean, these poor disciples, they went on a six-day journey following this Messiah figure, and then they went up to the top of a high mountain. They were probably hungry, dehydrated, and in that thin air, they just got to have seeing things, right? They thought they saw it, but it wasn't real. It happens to a lot of people. You know, they have a point. You know, sometimes I think Christians are some of the more gullible people. Would anyone agree with me? <laughs> I remember that story, I think I told it before, of this story that came back in the, back in the 80s. I heard this story first about the Russians. Of course, they were an atheist, communist country, but they were digging this extremely, extremely deep hole into the earth for a scientific experiment. And then they heard noises coming out of this hole. And they listened to whatever they did to kind of, they heard, basically they heard hell. They heard the wailing and they heard all this stuff, you know, like the Bible talks about hell. And this story went out and it got spread around the Christians and they believed it. But it was concocted by a man who did it on purpose just to see if Christians would believe it. And unfortunately, many did. So, why should we believe when someone tells you a fantastic story? You can buy books by the dozens today that do the same thing. And you can watch YouTube videos Supposedly real interviews describing real things. Lots of concocted stories put cleverly together. And I talked to people who believe them. I had considered making this a message of bringing a little bit of caution, at least caution, <laughs> about the stories that you read of people dying and going places and then coming back again. At least a caution. <laughs> I would go further than that, but for you, at least a caution. But I decided the last message was negative enough, and I won't go there. Well, Peter, why should I believe you? Why should I believe your eyewitness? There are many supposedly eyewitnesses. Why should I believe you? And Peter goes on. And we're going to read verses 19 to 21. Second Peter. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, where unto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter says, now we have a more sure word. Well, a more sure than what? Is it a more sure word than an eyewitness? 
Is there something more sure than an eye and an ear witness? Is there something more sure than your experience? We have a more sure word, aware, where he says, of prophecy. Whatever it is, it comes from prophecy. So what does it mean, this more sure word? Well, that more sure, if you you look it up, it actually is, is a variation of the word confirmed. There's something being confirmed here. And com- the definition of confirmed is to establish, and I should put the emphasis on the first word, establish the truth or correctness of something that was previously believed, suspected, or feared to be the case. <laughs> something was pe- previously believed to be the case, but then it was confirmed to be true. Whether it's something positive or something negative. Of course, when you hear of an accident and you are fearful, you heard that someone may have been seriously injured or died, and later on it's confirmed that's a negative, of course. But then there's also positive ones. Um, One that we read last evening was when Absalom... Absalom killed Abnon, and and all the king's sons fled, and the word came back to King David that all the king's sons were killed. Well, that was not confirmed because then the king's sons came back and said, no, it was only one was killed. So that was one incident where it was not confirmed. So, we have a more sure, a confirmed word of prophecy. Besides our eyewitness, we have a confirmed word of prophecy. Now, Peter knew the Old Testament scriptures. He was a Jew. Uh, According to archaeology, archaeology, Peter had a house in Capernaum, and it was within a stone's throw of the synagogue. Now, maybe he didn't grow up there, but that was his house, they think. I guess all these things are up to, uh, these things were not confirmed, let's say it that way. (laughs) But uh, he knew, he grew up in the synagogue, and in the synagogue, there were scrolls. And these scrolls were old, old scrolls, ancient scrolls. And these scrolls contain the story or the narrative of God creating the world and of the fall of man and the flood and the beginning of the Jewish nation from Abraham on through. So we had the story, the narrative of the Jewish people. His, 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 his identity was in those scrolls. Where he came from, what he believed, was in those scrolls. But beside the narrative part of those scrolls, there were prophecy parts. Starting way back when the fall of man occurred, there came that promise that there was going to be a seed born to the woman that is going to um, save or redeem the promise the coming seed would crush the serpent's head. 
And so there were prophecies, and there were prophecies, and there were prophecies in those scrolls that coming through the centuries. What are some of the prophecies that were found fulfilled in this Jesus? Well, I got a list of them. So I thought it would be good to us to read them. We're talking about prophecies that confirm something. We have a more sure, we have a confirmed word of prophecy. So I'm just going to go down through a list here. Messiah would be born of a woman. That's in Genesis chapter 3. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin. He would come from the line of Abraham. He would be a descendant of Isaac. He would be a descendant of Jacob. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be the heir to King David's throne. The Messiah would be called Emmanuel. He would spend a season in Egypt. A massacre of children would happen at Messiah's birthplace. A messenger would prepare the way for Messiah. Messiah would be rejected by his own people. He would be preceded by Elijah. He, was, he would be declared to be the son of God. He would be called a Nazarene. He would bring light to Galilee. He would speak in parables. He would heal the brokenhearted. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He would be called king. The Messiah would be praised by little children. Messiah would be betrayed. His price money would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be falsely accused. And he would be silent before his accusers. He would be spat upon and struck. He would be hated without a cause. He would be crucified with criminals. He would be given vinegar to drink. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He would be mocked and ridiculed. Soldiers would gamble for his garments. His bones would not be broken. He would be forsaken by God. He would pray for his enemies. Soldiers would pierce Messiah's side. He would be buried with the rich. And he would resurrect from the dead. He would ascend to heaven. And he would be seated at God's right hand. Those are a small sampling of the prophecies. Now, Peter grew up hearing those prophecies. Just like we hear the prophecies about the Lord's coming again. We hear them. And, of course, we have it all figured out. (laughs) But Peter, like the Jews, wondered. I'm sure they wondered about these things. In fact, the prophets who spoke these words didn't understand it. In fact, the angels, they had a desire to look into things. They didn't understand it. But then the very unthinkable thing happened. The very fulfillment of all of those prophecies happened right in front of Peter. He experienced the fulfillment of those prophecies. 
All those promises made in the Old Testament, not all of them. <laughs> Many of those promises made in the Old Testament came to pass. They were confirmed. Supernatural experience now confirms supernatural revelation. That is why Peter can say we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Because we have experienced not just an eyewitness of his glory and all that goes with it, but we have experienced all those questions we had, they're fulfilled. In the book, Science Speaks, Two authors, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman, discuss the statistical improbability of one man, whether accidental or deliberately, fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. They're going to describe the improbability. The chances that Eight of these prophecies that were given in the Old Testament could happen to one man. What are the chances it could happen to one man? They say is one in the 10 to 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros behind it. Am I correct? Science teachers, please, that's correct. Stoner gives an illustration that helps us visualize the magnitude of such odds. Suppose we take... 10 to the 17th power worth of silver dollars and we spread them out across the state of Texas so that covered the state of Texas two feet thick. And then you would take one of those silver dollars and you would mark it. And then you would stir this whole thing up. I don't know, Texas, what, 600 miles? I don't know, it's huge. Stir that up. Then you would blindfold a man, and you say he can walk wherever he wants to walk. He can walk all the 600 miles back and forth, up and down, wherever he wants to walk. He can pick up one silver dollar, and if it's that silver dollar, that's the probability that you can, that eight prophecies can be fulfilled in one man. And I just read to you 40. Cunningly devised fables. Actually, there's 300 types and prophecies of the Lord Jesus. I know some of them were not prophecies. Some of them are possibly types. Those who reject Christ and his claims are not intellectuals. There are other reasons to reject Christ. Anyone who rejects Christ is following some cleverly devised fable. And they're rejecting the only one true reality of the universe. We have the word of prophecy confirmed. And then one more thing. So we have, as you restate, we have. Two reasons given why Peter says we have not followed cunningly devised fables. One is we saw it. We were eyewitness. Next is we have that more sure word of prophecy. A prophecy is confirmed. What was given 
it happened and it was confirmed. And so Peter says, we do well to take heed and don't we ever. We do well to take heed to that kind of reality. Take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Here is Peter's final exhortation. Have all of the prophecies of the Bible been fulfilled? What do you think? No? No. Later on in his very letter, which we'll get there eventually, I suppose, Peter talked about scoffers who doubt that the Lord's going to come back as he says he will. They brush aside all those things that have come before and they just scoff at it and just brush it aside. I think that is actually the definition of being willingly ignorant. It's because you have to be willingly ignorant not to accept uh, such evidence as that. But Peter says we should take heed as unto a light that shineth. Since God has been so thorough in the past, we do well to pay close attention to what he says will still happen. We have a reliable track record. We have lots of evidence. And we can have full confidence. I thought about picking that song this morning. We don't have to sing it. It's a gospel song. Standing on the promises of God. We can stand on those promises They will never fail. And if you stand on those promises, you will never fall. Because his promises are sure. They're yea and amen in him. So, like a light shining in a dark place. The Old Testament times were dark. Heathens. You had the Jewish nation, but you had the Roman world. You had a dark place. You had half the people in slavery. You had... A lot of things. The Roman world was a dark place. Is the world situation dark today? Think of Mary and where she's at. Think of America and all the people here. Think of Europe, of China. Now, it's not all bad. We have a light. We have a light. It is shining in a dark place. But it is shining. And he says, someday the day will dawn. The day will dawn and it will be fully light. And that is not a cunningly devised fable either. That is the truth. It's the truth as sure as it can be made. This truth is to stir us up and to spur us on. Like Peter, he was faithful the whole way to his death. You know, we could think of lots of evidences. I mean, I gave right out of here two evidences of the truth of the gospel. One of the things you can't, well, the disciples all made up this story and they believed it. 
but it's clearly evident that people will die for something that they believe in, but they will not die for something they know they made up. Something like um, they say, well, let's just say that the body was, you know, all those things. But Peter, no way. It was true. He was fully convinced. And Peter is saying to second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth generation Christians, remember, do not move away from that. There are lots of cleverly devised fables. They are all around us. After I'm gone, I want you to remember and to continue on. This is the truth. And I have a few verses that just simply reiterate here in closing what what uh, we were saying this morning out of other scriptures. Psalms 40, verse 7. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's Jesus. Luke 24, 44. Jesus talking to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And they were. And then, and a few verses later, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's that preaching or that uh, lecture or that, uh, yeah, that, that session that we all wish we could have been there. But we have the same scriptures. John five forty six. For had ye believed Moses, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And Acts 10, verse 43, to him gave all the prophets witness. So we have the prophetic word absolutely and completely fulfilled in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that sure word of prophecy and we have that, that now we're ready to move on in our lives. When, when you talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have lack of evidence if you can present it in such a way. Now, I know it's more than evidence. I know that people will say, well, people won't care how much you know until you know how much you care and there's an element of that there's an element of that and there's other ways but as we go out for our own lives and then for the lives of others we have much much confidence and that'll prepare us because in in the next in the next chapter Peter then uh, goes into the false prophets the false teachers where they will present some cleverly devised myths. And he, before he gets into that, clearly lays out the right truth, the way it is. So that prepares us. And may God bless you.